for signs that they're here. And I was building up to some more specific things uh, whereby we might watch even closer because God says he will not do anything unless he warns through his servants the prophets. And there are quite a few things within the prophets, uh, the books of the Bible that were set specifically to prophecy for this end time, which give us some very strong clues about where we are. In fact, even maybe some specific direction. So I spent last week going through to show how God has set up his 7,000-year plan and how that man would have 6,000 years, apparently four of them before Christ uh, began his work here, and then two years after, I mean two, yeah, two days or 2,000-year periods afterward, and then the end would be here. Now, we're at the end of almost 2,000 years since Christ proclaimed the Jubilee in 27 A.D., and indeed, we see the signs all around us that the end of this age is almost upon us, that the world cannot much longer endure what it is enduring without a great financial collapse and World War III. The financial collapse is prophesied in the book of Zephaniah uh, just before uh, he begins the story of Haggai and Zechariah in the rebuilding of the temple. So those events are very close together. And Zephaniah also talks about the Assyrian coming into the land and creating great destruction, as does the book of Habakkuk just before that. And in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3, God tells Habakkuk uh, not to worry. These things are on schedule. They will happen. Uh, may seem like a long time to you, but it's going to happen. And he saw all these things that were going to happen, and they scared him. And he finally says, I'll sit on my watch and watch how God brings this about. And that's the end of the book of Habakkuk. So then Zephaniah begins with God talking about destruction on the nations, and then from there immediately goes uh, about the financial destruction that is going to occur. And I think if you're paying much attention to the news, you see cracks all through the financial condition of the whole world, and you see the war drums beginning to beat more and more uh, toward the beginning of World War III and how this thing will all wrap up. So the leaves are certainly coming on the trees and getting there very strongly. <clears throat> Peter did tell us, as we read, that God is not slack concerning his promises. When he says he gives man and Satan 6,000 years, that's what he gives him. Now, Satan's may be cut short a little bit, uh, at the end of the millennium, and then that time added back at the end of the millennium, we'll put it that way, because he'll be chained up for a thousand years and then loosed for a little season. Now, it may be that God cuts it a little short at the end of this 6,000 years and then gives that back to Satan because 
Even with Satan, if God makes him a promise, <clears throat> he gives him all that he promised. He doesn't cut back on it. So he's given us this 6,000 years. I think it should become quite obvious that we're at the end of that now. And I think that God did corroborate that it is true that he was announcing the Jubilee there in 27 A.D. when he began working with Herbert Armstrong in 26 and 27, 1926 and 1927 A.D., uh, 1926 representing the 49th year of the Jubilee cycle, and 27, the 50th year, or the Jubilee. So he began to give a triple blessing in that 49th year. Herbert Armstrong discovered the Sabbath, uh, learned about baptism and quite a few different things in that time frame and began moving forward toward a work. <clears throat> now, I've referred to the last, oh, the last few chapters of uh, Isaiah, about 36 through 39, as a parallel of Herbert Armstrong having followed in the shoes of Hezekiah in many ways. Hezekiah's life was extended. Herbert Armstrong had a severe heart attack and had his life extended for the work's sake. And then it talks there toward the end of 39 how people would be carried to Babylon and how his sons would become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Uh, a eunuch, of course, being unable to create children, uh, not be able to re reproduce himself. And after Herbert Armstrong did a great work of calling, uh, those who followed him, trained by him, went, went out into Babylon after his death, and have been able to do almost nothing. They've not been able to reproduce what Herbert Armstrong did, even though that's what they're trying to do, to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. And yet at the same time, they say Herbert Armstrong finished that, and the end ought to be here. So it's a contradiction, really, that they're trying to do his job when they say he's already done it. <clears throat> so how do you come up with that? Anyway, Herbert Armstrong said, at least there'll be peace in my time, or that's what Hezekiah said. And it essentially was that way, uh, except for some difficulties, but essentially peace in the church. But it began to war and really truly come apart after his death in 1986, January of 86, the 16th. Now, what is to come after? People understand that Worldwide Church of God came apart and disappeared. I don't think many yet to this day realize that it wasn't the Church of Philadelphia. It was Sardis and did die. And there are many who claim to be Philadelphians, and they are not. They are Laodiceans. The Church of Philadelphia has not yet arrived. It will be an amalgamation of a remnant of the other seven churches, and it will be protected 
from the trouble that is to come, as it clearly says in uh, Revelation 3. The focus today, then, is going to be, since Herbert Armstrong died in 1986, and nothing substantial appears to have been done ever since, over 30 years ago, where do we go from here? Or where did we go, or where are we going from his death forward? Now, God said that he would, well, he was, uh, he was correcting uh, Miriam and Aaron. And he said, he speaks to his prophets in dreams and visions. And he says, but with Moses, I didn't do that. I came and spoke to Moses eyeball to eyeball, mouth to mouth. So he put him on a level that was different than all the other prophets had been. So he says, how, you, how dare you question my servant Moses when I have been this way with him? But they questioned him anyway. But God spoke, if you go through and look up the word vision or visions and dreams, you'll find that through all the Old Testament prophecies, God came to those men and showed them what he wanted them to do, what he wanted them to say, and that is the way that he has always operated throughout history. So, should we th expect things to be any different today than they were then? Now, all kinds of people dream all kinds of dreams and have all kinds of ideas, but is it something that fits with the Word of God? Because he talks about prophets who've raised themselves up, who speak the wrong things, that it's not according to this law and testimony and Jeremiah even dealt with one who, whom God had not appointed, but who had raised himself up and gave a false prophecy. And Jeremiah said he would die, and he did. So God does not like for people to be presumptuous and to set themselves up as an emissary or someone sent by God on their own. He doesn't go for that. It is something that he keeps to himself, for himself, to do. So we have to be very careful, as Christ warned us. So there will be many that come in my name, but it isn't by my authority. In my name means by my authority. So they would come claiming authority, but not having it. So there's a huge difference there. But, we read in Isaiah 40, after Hezekiah and Herbert Armstrong died, because these are all end-time prophecies, that God would want his people to be comforted and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her sins will be forgiven, and she will receive double blessing for all the sins that she had committed, and that this cry is to come, verse 3, from the wilderness, <clears throat> saying, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Now, John the Baptist uh, was spoken of as having done this, and indeed he did. But without going back through all that, it is very clear from what Christ said that John the Baptist was indeed preparing the way for his cousin to come to be the Christ. But he also said that there would be another who would come in the same spirit of both Elijah and John the Baptist to comfort God's people. And how God's glory would be revealed in verse 5. <clears throat> and then it says, what's to be preached? Well, verse 6, 7, talk about how human beings are equated as grass, and the grass withers and dies. And we're seeing that right now as a tremendous drought has come across most of the western United States. And we're beginning to cry out for water. They just reduced the amount of electricity that they're trying to produce at Lake Mead, uh, Hoover Dam, by 25%. The water is getting so low they can't do it anymore. And as the lake continues to drop, less and less power will be able to be generated by the water flowing. So it's not only a crisis of water, but it's also an energy crisis. And I've read several reports recently that say that this is the worst drought now that we've had in 1,200 years. And it's getting worse day by day. What are all those people in Tucson and Phoenix, San Diego, maybe San Diego, but L.A. and Las Vegas going to do? Las Vegas gets 90% of its water from Lake Mead. And they got to where the two straws that they had in the lake to draw water out for their use were getting so shallow that they couldn't draw their water out. So they just spent $800 million to run another pipe out to the bottom of the lake so that they could get water as long as there's any water in the lake. And it doesn't have to go down much more until there'll be no water coming out of that dam at all. It'll be a dead pool. There'll be no water on the bottom side of the dam at all. That's just one example. There are others in California and up here with Lake Powell which are getting in the same condition. Where are those people going to do? What are they going how are they going to survive? Many of them will die because it's too hot down there in the desert for them to live without water and power. They'll fight among themselves for what there is and kill each other. And then some will try to get out of there and go somewhere else where there's also drought and problems. People are going to die. All flesh is as grass and withers in the sun and the heat and the lack of power. And then he says in verse 9, in spite of that, you that bring good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountains and bring good news. Lift up your voice with strength and say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So in the midst of mankind withering up as grass, he has good news for those of Zion. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him, the branch, the arm of 
the Lord. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And he'll gently lead his people like a shepherd, leading his flock. And then he goes on to say that the nations are as nothing before God, but he'll be leading his people when these nations are coming apart. And then he says in chapter 41, he'll raise up a righteous man from the east. He's going to come from the east uh, and call him to his foot, and he's going to give him power over the nations. That could only be Zerubbabel, because he's the only one given power over the nations. It says it in the last two verses of Haggai and in Revelation 11, where he will be able to produce plagues, and all kinds of things, and Satan and his new world government will not be able to stop the work of those two, led by this man from the east. So, all these next chapters talk about that, and how he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness, in verse 19, uh, remnants of all seven of the churches, the trees, men, and uh, he'll declare the latter end of them in verse 22. Then in verse 25, he mentions again the leader that he's going to send. I've raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun or the east. So the man that we are going to see come out to lead is going to have been born in the north, come from there, but when he comes, he'll be coming from the east. So he gives us some clues here. And then he says, on down in verse 26, Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yes, there is none that shows, there is none that reveals, there is none that hears your words. So there's going to be a dearth of understanding of all this. Then it says in verse 27, The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So one is going to come with a message and talk about the two that are to be. One will talk about them. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. Not more than that, just one. So when he says, speak comfortably back in chapter 40, and to say, behold your God, there's only one who is going to understand the story. That's all. No one else will have it. For I behold, beheld, and there was no man, even among them, there was no counselor, that when I asked for them, could answer a word. They are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. Now that is an exact description of the scattered churches of God since Herbert Armstrong died. It's confusion and nothing. And it's like a wind blowing and vanity. It's of no use. There's only one place you're going to hear the truth about what is to come. Now, if that be the case, where is it? How many people know? Where is it? 
Well, I'll tell you. It's right here. This is the only place you hear the story. Now, I don't take credit for that whatsoever, because it all came from God. And having come from Him, all I am is a spokesperson who had these things come to his understanding and was told to do what is currently being done. And it isn't huge, very, very small, just a lone voice in the wilderness telling the church, if they'll listen, it's on the websites, what is coming, and to be able to explain what the church has gone through. Now, I've been through that with you many times, of why the church is in the condition it's in, what caused it, the spewing, and then what is the answer to it. And he says right here, that no one will understand it but one. I'm sorry, but this is the only place that that has been done. Now, Herbert Armstrong talked of such things when he said he was the first one to proclaim the full gospel of God in 1900 years. And he was. Now, as I said, I think last week, the New Testament church went on for about 70 years after Christ made his proclamation of the Jubilee. But since that proclamation, nothing had been started in uh, after that, other than what Christ did with the New Testament church. So you count it from the beginning of his ministry uh, to the beginning of Herbert Armstrong's. What went on for the next 70 years in the early New Testament church is there as a pattern because Herbert Armstrong's work lasted about 70 years. And that was all. And then it was gone. Now, I make that statement, and it's humbling to even say that God gave me the message, but who am I? I was really nothing in worldwide, just a pastor of churches. And yet here we are, out in a wilderness, because we heard in Micah 4 that we should leave the city and go dwell in the field or the wilderness, and there we would be delivered. So all these promises of deliverance are based upon us doing what God tells us to do, one of which is to leave the midst of Babylon and come out where it has less effect and disassociate ourselves as best we can from Babylon, even though we are technically still in it. So here we are, and the message has been going out from the same area that it did under Herbert Armstrong. He was in a city of many merchants, the L.A. area in Pasadena, but it was the southwestern United States. That's where God's work emanated beginning in 1926 and 27. It was in Oregon, but it shortly moved out. And there is where it really got rooted and started to grow. Now, how did this, us here, come to pass? Because what 
is being taught from these prophecies is the message that Isaiah 40 is talking about. So it had to start somewhere. God says he uses the weak and the base, and if he's using me as an instrument, thus far at least, uh, that's what he got. <laughs> uh, to confound the wise. There are much smarter people, much wiser people, people with more understanding of certain things uh, than I am. But God gave it to someone who was nothing. And we have to deal with that. So how did this come to pass? And how does the sequence of events fit? I gave you a chart some a few years ago which showed a parallel between Herbert Armstrong's work and what we've done here, and it's an amazing thing. I've made a few minor corrections to it uh, because didn't understand exactly when some things would happen, uh, but that will be explained. So how did we get here? I had a very vivid dream at the beginning of my junior year in Ambassador College, uh, I was junior class president and was being considered for as a student leader and so on uh, by the Manpower Committee, apparently, uh, to get involved in the ministry. I didn't know that at that time, but I had this very powerful dream. It was short, but it was in Technicolor. And it was very, very impressive to me. And in it, I was asked, if I entered into the ministry, would I be willing to accept death or martyrdom as a result of being in the ministry? And I said, yes, in the dream. Very powerful and spoken to me in the dream. Well, shortly thereafter, within, I think, two or three weeks, uh, one of the ministers was traveling down to San Diego to, to give the sermon on the Sabbath and asked if I would go and lead music, the hymns. So I said certainly and, and went, and that may have happened another time or two somewhere else in the area. I don't remember, but uh, the next ministerial speaking list that came out, uh, I was listed on there to give a sermonette, beginning of junior year. And it was in Los Angeles. Rod Meredith was the pastor there. So uh, he was the one that made the speaking list. <laughs> so he put me right there with him. So he'd, he'd be there for it. And uh, I don't know, there are five, 600 people there, I suppose. And I was nervous, but I gave the sermonette. I didn't know he gave grades on sermonettes. He's the only one I ever heard of that did. But when I was done, he he got me aside and talked to me about the sermonette and said, well, I'll give you a B. And, of course, in my youth and vanity, I was a little put off. I, you know, I thought I should have had an A anyway. But uh, he said a B. And uh, in retrospect, as I look back, that was pretty good. Could have been an F, you know, or a D or something. But So later I came to accept that, well, that was pretty good grade he gave me. Uh, but 
then I was on the speaking list for the rest of my junior year and appointed uh, student body president by Herbert Armstrong and, and began to get more and more involved and started giving split sermons and then sermons toward the end of my senior year. So God, immediately after that vivid dream, got me involved in the ministry. But he did not do it without giving me a warning that this might lead to my death. And I accepted that, and I still accept it as the case. Uh, God is very fair, and of course I didn't know how many other students might have had a dream like that. I, that was just with me personally, and I never said a word to anybody about it. Uh, it was just, it was very personal. Well, I went on into the ministry then, and uh, pastored several churches, and then was out of the ministry for 12 years and was up in Alaska making my own living. And I see God's hand all through that, but I won't go through all that with you here. I just want to get down to the nuts and bolts of this. Uh, and this picks up with this chart, which you probably don't have with you. But there is a great parallel between the events in Herbert Armstrong's ministry and the events that have happened in this little congregation. Now, as you know, he died in 1986, and that was uh, about 60 years after he had been called. Then the church went on under the Tkachas, headed into paganism and back into Babylon, until about 1996, it was pretty well dead and had disappeared back into the world. So it lasted about 70 years before you could really put death sentence on it, just like the early New Testament church had. So here's another parallel between Christ's beginning of the New Testament church and the end time calling part of the work. Then he says, many were called, but few will be chosen. So there has to be a period of time then when God chooses from the many that were called and chooses a few to do another work. Now, in 1990, I mean, yeah, uh, let me get my dates right here. 1924, Herbert Armstrong's business had failed. And he moved to Oregon to get a fresh start. And shortly after arriving there in 26 and 27, uh, he began to learn the truth and begin a work. Now, I was in Nevada and Arizona Beaver Dam, for the most part of 1991 to 94. And uh, I had moved down there because of a business opportunity. I didn't really move down there. My family was still in Alaska. But I was told that I could commute every week back and forth because there would be plenty of money for that. Turned out it was a bad business plan, even though it sounded good. And it had trouble. And in 1994... It failed. 
So I had to do something different. Now, as I look back, I realize that God just sprung me out of there in 1994. I was having trouble selling houses. I was running my part of the business there on credit cards, just barely getting by, hoping to sell houses, barely staying afloat. And then all of a sudden, one day, I had three model houses there. Here guys comes a guy in, and he says, Oh, are these models for sale? I said, Yeah. And he says, Well, I'll take all three of them. And not long after that, he came and gave me a check for all three houses. So I paid them off, what we owed on them, and uh, paid off most of the debts that were there and sent a letter of resignation to the state of Nevada that I would not be part of that company anymore because I knew it was headed for bankruptcy. And so I headed back to Alaska. So God just simply sprung me out of there. Uh, But before that happened, I woke up one morning and had a vision. Just as you're waking up is is a vision instead of a dream. You're kind of not sure whether you're awake or asleep at that point. And a voice told me, and this was again in Technicolor. I've had lots of dreams, a lot of weird dreams, a lot of strange dreams. Dreams that mean nothing, like most dreams of people. But this one again was very, very plain, very clear, and the message was unmistakable. And the voice said, I want you to prepare a place for my people, and it's near here. I've told you this story, but it was very, very plain. And I said, who, me, what, what do you mean near here? What, what is this about? And it said again, I want you to prepare a place for my people near here. And I said, I agreed. I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that. But I didn't know what he meant. <clears throat> now, I had been up to Zion. I was, at that time, beginning to get more and more affiliated with John Reitenbaugh and Church of the Great God. They had a congregation, the nearest one in Anaheim, California. So I would go from Arizona down to Anaheim on a lot of Sabbaths. And they were trying to get me back in the ministry, and I said, I don't want to do that. I've been enjoying not being in the ministry, thank you. I can make more money and live with less stress, and everything's better for me out of the ministry. Now, Herbert Armstrong had told me when I was put out of the ministry that when you get your life squared away, I want you back, which to me was a strange thing for him to say in that meeting, but he had said it. But I was resisting that idea, and of course he was dead and wasn't going to do what he had said. Didn't want to be in the ministry. That's the last thing I wanted to get back into. I'd gone through all the stress and the headaches and the hair pulling that that involves. Didn't want any more of it. But John Reitenbaugh had begun a church January 11th, 1992, uh, when he realized that uh, things were coming apart and not going back together and worldwide. He had decided, uh, when people came to him and said, John, John, will you be our pastor? 
He said, well, I hadn't really intended to start another group, but we want you to be our pastor. So he said, well, okay. So the first meeting was January 11th, 1992. I find that interesting, 111. Uh, first month, 11th day of 92. And it was called Church of the Great God. Now, I'm going to bring that in now. I could do it later, but I don't want to forget it. Because I realized when events had gone on from where we currently are speaking, uh, the correct name for the latter temple in the end time would be Church of the Great God. It's listed in... Ezra 5, verse 8, where they were building the house of the great God. Whether you call it house, congregation, church, it all means the same thing. The assembly or the congregating of people for church work. So I realized he had the correct name. And I did not intend to start a group either by any means because I thought there were already plenty. But when it came time that people asked me to be their pastor, I just took a simple name, a congregation of the Church of God, because I knew that this would not be the final form. Okay? Just a congregation of God's people. I didn't want it to be pretentious, didn't want it to sound uh, too big, just a bunch of God's people. And essentially, that's all we've been. But he had taken the correct name, and I do believe he will be here before too long, and we will take that name. It won't be a congregation of God anymore. It will be the church of the great God. And the temple of the great God is what will be used because that's Scripture. So he began that in the first month of 1992. And I had become involved with it in going to Anaheim for church services. And sometimes, if I didn't want to make that drive, I would come up to Zion National Park and spend the Sabbath because it was such a beautiful place. To show you how smart I am, I didn't figure that it was the place. I'd had the dream that a place near here, and I'd looked around at housing divisions and trying to figure out what that meant. And didn't know. But I would go up to Zion, and I'd look upon it as a beautiful place that God had made, not as the Zion. Didn't know that. So, I sold those three houses, went back to Alaska in the early winter of 1994, and spent uh, the winter there doing some, adding a room onto the house and whatnot. And then... Summer of 1995, John Reitenbaugh and John Reed, who was his uh, elder and closest associate there, decided to come up and visit us in Alaska. Didn't say why, just wanted to come up and visit. And John Reitenbaugh doesn't usually stay anywhere very long, but they came and stayed about a week. <clears throat> and I didn't know what they were there for or what they were doing, and they didn't say a word. So we come to the Feast of Tabernacles in 95, and 
I had been added to the board of directors, so John, I was there in the meeting when they had a director's meeting. And all he started going into how he was overworked and overtaxed and couldn't keep up with things in Charlotte. He needed help. And finding somebody qualified to help was so hard to do. And my conscience is bothering me, and I loved Alaska. And I didn't want to go to North Carolina as a human being. But he kept on, so finally I raised my hand and say, is there any way I might get help with my experience in the ministry? So he says, well, we'll talk. So he took Marla and I to lunch and asked her, he asked her if that would be okay with her. Uh, and she says, well, yes, it would. So he hired me, Feast of 95. So we went back to Alaska after the feast and started making preparations to move to Charlotte. But I felt a very strong compulsion to be there on the 1st of January of 96. I don't know where I got the idea, just I thought I ought to, he didn't tell me when to report, that's just when I thought I ought to be there. Well, that wasn't time to get things ready in Alaska and sell business and sell house and all that stuff. So I just loaded a pickup and a trailer and headed for Charlotte and got there a few days ahead of time and then reported for work on the 1st of January, 1996. And then somewhere soon after that, uh, probably between the 11th of January and the 16th of January, that's about as close as I can nail it down, uh, came a very vivid dream. And it was about the book of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, the former temple and the latter temple, as I was to come to understand. Could have been on the 11th, which was the day John had begun Church of the Great God. Could have been on the 16th, which is the day Herbert Armstrong died, and this was 10 years later. Uh, or it could have been one of those intervening days there. That's about as close as I can Remember, because I don't write stuff like that down. <clears throat> but it gave me the story of Haggai and Zechariah. Herbert Armstrong had told me in 1981 he was Zerubbabel, and I thought that was probably true. And then he died on us, and time went by, ten years, and then God showed me who Zerubbabel is in a very powerful, compelling dream. It wasn't me, it was somebody else. And that I could be included in this uh, if I should so desire and would live up to the standard. And I said, okay, I'll be part of it. Now that was in the first month of January, uh, the month of January, first month of the year in 1996. Seventy years after uh, Herbert Armstrong had begun to be taught in 1926. Seventy years later, to the month, maybe to the day, don't know for sure. And I had all this sudden understanding that had been imparted, so several of us there around Charlotte began to study very carefully into the scriptures and Haggai, Zechariah, Zephaniah, through the rest of the prophecies, trying to see how this went together, how it all would be. Now, 
We studied that, and I gave a sermon, a sermon on Haggai, and I think it was the first week in February of 96, about the book of Haggai and Zechariah and what it means to the end-time church. <clears throat> then I went on back to Alaska. No, I was in Alaska when I gave that sermon over the telephone. I'd gone back up there to start getting things ready to move the family down. Well, John asked Marla and I to come back to Chicago to keep the Passover that year. So we were there, and we'd had the Passover service the night of the 14th. And on that afternoon, the next day, which I didn't know at that time was Passover day, which it has turned out it is, uh, it was long in the afternoon. I was preparing a sermon for what I then thought was the first day of unleavened bread, the next day. And in the afternoon, which I think now is important, I dozed off. And then as I was waking up, had this vision. You could call it nothing else but a vision. I've told you about it, of the two maps, one of Utah and the surrounding area and one of the Middle East and how they were an exact image, one of the other. I won't go into all that detail right now. You've heard it before. Uh, the only thing that was left out was Jerusalem in both places. But Zion and Petra and all the things that we believed about the Middle East were there. And there they were in Utah. It was very powerful. Now, I didn't recognize it at the time. I realized that an awful lot of new knowledge was coming. It was just like every day something new, something that increased our understanding. And I recognized that, but I didn't put it together with Joel 2, where he says, I'll give you the former and the latter rains, and it would just come like incredible blessings, rivers of living water. And it started... In both first months, the first month of the year, the Gregorian calendar, and the first month of God's calendar, John Reitenbaugh had a uh, Berean, I think it was yesterday, about the covenant God made with Abraham. And I found it very interesting that he put together that the day Abraham's covenant was given was on Passover day. And that Christ died on Passover day. Now many have questioned over the years, why did we have the Passover at sundown on the beginning of the 14th, but Christ didn't die until the next afternoon? Well, in my mind, you had to realize that one was a type or a symbol and that he needed to go through it with his disciples before it actually occurred. But his actual death was on Passover day in the afternoon. And that's exactly the way Abraham's covenant with God began, was with him offering a sacrifice, and then it was in the afternoon, and then night came thereafter. So God had made the timing exactly of Abraham's covenant on Passover day day after the ceremony. Christ died on Passover day in the afternoon after the ceremony the night before. 
Now, this vision about the Middle East in Utah came on the afternoon of Passover day. I find that quite remarkable, that God gave that at the same time he started the covenant with Abraham and the time Christ died, and the Passover was a very, very big part of it all. It was only later that he showed that Passover day is the actual first holy day. He'd done things on that day. The important stuff happened that day with Abraham and with Christ, and yet we thought it was not even a Sabbath. It was a donut and hamburger day. No, not at all. The most important day. So God revealed some of the most important things that have to be done here in the end time on Passover day. Because I hadn't a clue where near here was. when I was in Beaver Dam, Arizona, and I got that dream of prepare a place near here. I didn't know where near here meant a day's drive or two days' drive away or 30 minutes or what it meant. And with that vision came knowledge that Zion was the true Zion, not the one in the Middle East. So that gave the details necessary to know where God was going to do his work. Without knowing that, how can you do anything? You can't. <coughs> so that information came on Passover in 96. Now, let's go back to the chart here. Herbert Armstrong in 24 had a failed business, moved to start again. 1994, 70 years later, I had a failed business. had to go back to Alaska to kind of start over again. Still had some stuff there, but uh, I hadn't been working it, and it needed a lot of attention. <clears throat> so 1924 and 1994, 70 years. 26, 1926 and 7, Herbert Armstrong was called, given new knowledge, Sabbath, baptism, and so on. January of 1996, we got the new information about the promised land and where it was, what it was about, as well as beginning to understand the minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah first, because there's where it tells how the leaders will come, and then the remnant will come, and then the latter temple will be built. So that was very important knowledge to come, and that unfolding of new knowledge came primarily in 1996 and 97, same as it did with Herbert Armstrong, 70 years later. We come down to 1931. Herbert Armstrong says the end time work began in 1931. Seventy years later, I and we began moving to Utah to begin a new work. Knew about it. Knew where it was going to be by then, because I'd learned that in Passover 96. But I'd begun searching on different trips out here to the west to try to find the place that God spoke of. Never could find a piece of ground that I thought he was basically giving us. And John Reitenbaugh had said, it has to be either given to us or almost given to us. He told me that in his office in Charlotte. 
because he was hearing this stuff and he was believing most of it. Uh, he backed off later, and now I understand why, but that was the case. <clears throat> so, at the same time, the end time work began with Herbert Armstrong in 1931. Seventy years later, 2001, we moved to Utah to begin. Most moved to Kanab, few to St. George, but here in the southern Utah area, uh, knowing that this is where we needed to be. So we came to do it. In 1933, Radio Church of God was incorporated, which was the formal beginning of the end-time church. I mean, it had existed, it was working, it was doing, he was preaching, but it had not been formally established. That happened in 1933. Now, we were here, and we were working at, and trying to find a place, and finally did, which was almost given to us, this place. And January of 2003, we divided the land up so that it could be settled and had a formal beginning. Exact same thing that had happened with Herbert Armstrong. All of these things 70 years later. Now to me, when I began to put this together and understand it, it was quite remarkable. Now the first glitch began in 1934 when radio began, the plain truth uh, in January and the plain truth in February of 1934. And we didn't do any such thing out here 70 years later. I just had a blank spot. Put a question mark in it. How, okay, here's, here's the end of my theory. Nothing happened like that 70 years later. It was only later that I put together Revelation 11 with it, where it says, Do not go out and establish a preaching of the gospel. Leave the court of the Gentiles out. Only, only deal with those in the church. Oh, so that's why there was nothing commensurate to the radio and the plain truth beginning in 2004. Because God had said don't. So that was left blank. Then I understood why. But this goes on. 1936 and 37, uh, Herbert Armstrong tried to establish a work in the Middle East. Somebody had told him that, well, this is the church of God... And if that was the original promised land, there ought to be a church over there. So he thought, that sounds reasonable. So he sent somebody to the Middle East during that period of time, 1936 and 37, to try to get a work established in the nation of Israel. And it all fell flat, and nothing would work, and nothing happened. And all through the ministry of Herbert Armstrong, from that effort forward, there was never a congregation of Worldwide Church of God in the nation of Israel. It never happened. People weren't called there. They were called other places in the world, but not there. Why? Well, it wasn't the right place. Now, it was the beginning 
of January, well, actually the last week of 06, in the first week of January of 07, that somebody came to me and t- told me that the true Jerusalem was here. Now, in all that I had learned about Zion and Utah and the Middle East and the map and everything that we'd researched afterward to corroborate it, <clears throat> I hadn't thought, where's Jerusalem? Hadn't crossed my mind that I remember. Why is it missing? Zion's here. Everything else is here. Where's Jerusalem? Well, here comes somebody that says, are you the pastor? And I said, yes. So, three days later on Sunday, first week of January, he took me and showed me and two other elders and their wives where Jerusalem was. That's where this is to be done. Herbert Armstrong tried 70 years before that to establish something in Jerusalem. Nothing would work. Exactly 70 years later, we learned where the true Jerusalem is. Now, not much has been done there yet, a little bit, but not much. But the point is, we learned where it is. Now we know, when this thing happens, where it's going to be. The 70 years, though, was there. 1946 and 47... Herbert Armstrong prepared and began Ambassador College. What was the purpose? To train a ministry to begin to gather people into the work or the church. Because all his attempts up to that point had failed. Because he would do an evangelistic campaign. And shortly after he'd go back to uh, Salem or Portland and leave these little towns with the little group that he had preached to, it would fall apart because there was no one there to help hold it together and to teach and to preach and to form a congregation. So he said, I have to have a ministry to do this, or people will never come together and will never have a substantial church. So he decided to begin Ambassador College and train men to go out and do that to build church houses, if you will, and to live in them. I didn't know at the time, but that would last about 70 years from the time he started the college until that era essentially was over. So he started that. What did we do? 2017 begins the events toward gathering and a greater work. He started the college to begin a greater work. And I will show you that in 2017, the events that are leading to the remnant church and the demise of our nation and the coming of the beast uh, would occur. From 2017, 70 years later. Now, in 1953, came the broadcast to Europe and Asia in in, uh, Worldwide Church of God. 
1953. I do believe that 2023, 70 years later, the two witnesses will begin to preach their 1260 days, their three and a half years. That seems to fit uh, the end time, time of events. Now, in 1996, Worldwide Church of God died, Sardis, pretty close to that time, and January 96 was given the information for a new work that would wind up being the beginnings of the latter temple. So the old died in the exact time, I believe, the information came, January of 96, that would lead to understanding and an establishment of a place for the remnant to come and God would do his work from there. And there, the 70-year comparison ends. Worldwide it ended and new information was given to start something fresh, beginning Isaiah 40 and moving forward after Herbert Armstrong's death. Now, I'm going to run out of time here, which is unfortunate. But uh, let's begin with the 70 years of of, uh, Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah said in... uh, Well, let's go to Daniel first, Daniel 9, and then we'll come back here. Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, what was written in the books, the number of the years whereof the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So, Judah, primarily, had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and had spent 70 years in captivity. And then uh, Darius the Persian came in and conquered Babylon, and Daniel was retained (coughs) as his head guy under him. But it was about that time that Daniel looked at Jeremiah and said, Oh, this is what Jeremiah was talking about. He hadn't known it up till then. And then he turned to God and prayed for help and how God's sanctuary was desolate and needed to be rebuilt. Now let's go back to Jeremiah, chapter 25. Now, in verse 3, he says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah to this day, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the eternal has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. God has sent you all his servants, the prophets, and you didn't hear, and told you to repent, and you wouldn't do it. Now, that was the message, basically, that Jeremiah gave. And it happened for 23 years. 
Now, I began this in 1996, and 23 years later, in 2017, been telling the church, you need to repent. We need to quit being Laodiceans. We need to be Philadelphians. We need to seek God with all our hearts. Been preaching it over and over for 23 years. And nothing happened. Nobody listened. Hardly anybody is listening. Just like they didn't listen to Jeremiah. So the same 23 years had been accomplished. Now let's go down to verse 12. He says that they would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And it shall come to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Eternal, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. And this will come, the fury, on all nations, 15, before it's all over. So he had been preaching this, and he said it would be 70 years. Now, how do we equate that to the end time? Let's go to chapter 29, first of all. Now, he's talking about desolation coming on Babylon at the end of the 70 years, okay? And that's what Jeremiah saw. Babylon was destroyed in Daniel, (coughs) and the 70 years was done. Now, here in chapter 10 of 29, he says, For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. That would be the true Jerusalem, which is where they were, or had been. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil. They were in captivity. To give you an expected end, then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, says the Eternal, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you. And I will bring you again to the place whence I cause you to be carried away captive. Southwestern United States was where God had gathered the church. That's where they all looked to. And he is going to bring them to the same area with the remnant, to Zion, which, and that's where this is. Now, I wondered how, for years, I wondered how do the, the prophecies of Jeremiah fit the church, the end time? Because it's an end time prophecy. Jeremiah 50 and 51 talk about the Assyrian coming and destroying Babylon, which we are. We are Israelites ruled over by Babylonians and by a Babylonian-type government. So I said, how does that fit? Well, it's become quite obvious. Herbert Armstrong began the, the college in 1947, and the purpose was to build houses. 
Jeremiah had told Israel, it will be a long captivity, go and build houses and live in them. And then that false prophet who raised himself up says, oh no, it'll be a short captivity, don't build houses. And Jeremiah proclaimed he would die, and he did. So they were going to be in Babylon 70 years. Well, what did Herbert Armstrong say? As he trained the minister, he says, go out, build houses, church houses, even their own houses, physical houses, but primarily houses or congregations of the church. And that would last. And they still are out there to some degree, even with the church decimated. And I believe that that 70 years ended in 2017, 70 years later. I'll explain a little more later. But remember that when they were released from Babylon after 70 years, there was an interim period there before uh, it was realized that the temple needed to be rebuilt, Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt, and getting permission to do it, and gathering everything up, and borrowing from the king's treasury, <clears throat> and then going from the Babylonian Empire in the Middle East over here to the original temple site took some time. So we're looking at two, three years of time there before anything really got going. And then even as they started, they had a delay for a certain amount of time because of enemies. So it took three, four years for this thing to really get going. So Mark 2017, as the end of the 70, from the time Herbert Armstrong said, go build houses, just like Jeremiah did. So count 70, and there should be a junction. Well, there was. And since 2017, we've now been in the preparation and the beginning for that to happen. Now, let's throw in another one. That's a sign from God. That's 70 years. An end-time prophecy. There's another one. The 430 years of Ezekiel, where he laid their days, which were as a year. And God said that the end of 430 days, or years, in the end time, uh, the destruction would come on Babylon. And... You'll read that in Ezekiel 5 through 8. <clears throat> so each day represented a year. Well, there, was, there weren't 430 years left for Ezekiel. So when is it referring to? And I believe from the time God gave this promised land back to the Israelites in 1587, uh, 430 years later is 2017. So God gave us back the 430 years that we lost in slavery. And this time, he said, do it my way. And if you came here from England, keeping the feast, keeping the Sabbath, and soon died out, and Babylon took over. And we have a Babylonian government with Babylonian architecture, and Masonic stuff all over Washington, D.C., and we're ruled over by Babylon. Even though we were given a chance to come out of slavery, we went right back into it. But God gave us back 430 years. <clears throat> 2017, that ended. Now, God does not say in Ezekiel that he would pronounce 
instant death at the right at the end of the 4.30. If you read on down through chapter 7 and 8, he'll say at the end of the 4.30 that it is come, it is near, it is come, it is come. It won't be like the echoing again of the hills. It's near. It's coming. He said it, I think, about 13, 14 times right there in just a few verses. So when you know the 4.30 is up, it won't be long until that destruction of this nation would occur. Okay, let's throw in one more. That's Isaiah 7, where there was a conspiracy and they were going to take over uh, Judah. And Ephraim was involved. So the upshot of it is, God said, I'll give you a sign. And the sign would be that within about 65 years, didn't say exactly, but about 65 years, Ephraim would be destroyed. At the time, the church was bringing forth the man-child named Emmanuel. 65 years. Well, I started looking for a conspiracy that would fit the Bible Scriptures. And the only thing that I could find that came near the end of the 70 years and the 430 years was the beginning of the Bilderberger movement in 1954, end of May 1954. About 65 years later would be 2019, and you would expect that somewhere about then, 2019, Ephraim would start coming apart and would not be a nation that was a threat anymore. So we have two 2017s, the 430 ending, the 70 years ending, and now the 65 years ending, 2019. <clears throat> soon after, all these things had to line up. It's like, is it noon? No. Uh, the second hand got there, but it's not noon yet. Now we've got to wait for the minute hand. When it gets there, is it noon? No. Now we've got to wait for the hour hand. Now when all three get there, it's noon. Same with these prophecies. He did not put an exact day on them, but he gave us the year. And then he said, soon after. So all he gave time for everything to line up. Well, what did history tell us? These things have been fulfilled. Amos 8.8 8 shows that eclipse that came across this nation in August of 2017. And God said, you know, this is the judgment. After this, you're going to start seeing dead people in the streets. A horrible trouble is coming. My judgment is complete. Well, July and uh, August of 2017, the 4.30 finished, the 70 years finished. And now we're about four years down the road with these things lining up. Well, if 2019 is the sign that God gave, you've got to be able to read the sign, right? Otherwise, what good is the sign? You get a road sign out here in Chinese, it doesn't do me a bit of good. I've got to have a sign I can read. Okay? 
what happened toward the end of 2019? They introduced a virus on purpose to be an end-time destruction event. And now people are dying from the vaccine left and right. And just recently I read that uh, a person who's very high in some of the energy corporations, oil and gas and, and electricity corporations, the big ones, have human resources departments that plan years ahead to have enough employees to run their business. So they figure in people that are going to be retiring, people that might uh, get fired, people that might resign. And just recently they did a study and they put a chalk mark by every employee that has had the vaccination. And they have said that they expect to have to replace every one of those employees within three years. That that vaccination is going to have them all dead within three years. So their human resources departments are using that <clears throat> as part of their planning. We've got to replace all these people within three years. They're going to start dying. And then we started having wear, to wear masks. And we got where we didn't know each other. And we had to stay six feet apart. And we're not a united nation by any means anymore. And you know what else happened after the 2019 began with this virus? We had an actual coup that occurred. A coup d'etat. It was bloodless, but it occurred. How many recognize that that has happened to our country? Remember Khrushchev years ago used to pound his shoe on the podium at the United Nations? And he said, we will take over America without firing a shot. The Chinese had the same plan. Now, how stupid do they think we are? Very Stupid is what they think. And you know what? They're right. They took a brainless man who can't line up two sentences and a woman who tried to run for president and couldn't get more than 1% of the opinion polls was not a viable candidate for president whatsoever, couldn't buy anybody to come to her speeches, so they took a brainless man and a woman who had slept her way to the top of the government in California and gotten to be attorney general by sleeping with the governor, and that's how she established her career, was on her back. So she has one talent. One's not helping the border, but at least she has one talent, I suppose, which she used to great effect, and now she's vice president. So we got a very immortal, immoral president and vice president, and one of them doesn't even have a brain, and the other one doesn't have much. And they convinced Americans that we voted for them. Now, why would you vote for somebody? That's never been done in the history of our country. And they all, both have very strong communist ties. <coughs> we have been taken over 
by communism. We are now not a republic. We do not have a constitution. We do not have rule by law. We have been taken over in a bloodless coup d'etat and have a government in Washington that does not represent the people as a republic. It is a communistic government run by communists and the two puppets that are doing the bidding of Russia and China are just there, basically doing nothing but trying to remember what to say when they're told what to say. They did a bloodless coup d'etat, and America no longer exists as we knew it. Now, has that prophecy in Isaiah occurred or not? And here it is, 2021, and we are having terrible droughts, as mentioned in Scripture, and all these end-time events are now occurring. They're not just a matter of prophecy anymore. They've occurred. We're being taken down. And we're already, the FBI apparently, from two reports I've seen, is completely shut down. The headquarters in Washington, D.C. is boarded up. Offices are empty and they got chains across the stairs to go up to the building. I've had two reports of that. So, here we are. And the parallels between what Herbert Armstrong did and what this little group has done are simply amazing. And you won't hear about this 70 years and this 430 years and this 65 years anywhere else. I'll guarantee you. No one has been given understanding but us. And we're in the right place at the right time to do the right things because this thing is upon us. And I've run out of time, so I'll just stop there, I guess. There is more that can be added about the time the timing of all this, and I think we are definitely on a timeline which has a definite end, and I referred to that last week in the 6,000 years and how it probably ends in 2026 and 27, uh, but don't have time to go into the details of that today. Maybe tomorrow, I don't know what tomorrow will bring as far as what needs to be said, but Tomorrow isn't very far away, and we'll know by then. So see you tomorrow on Pentecost, 1 o'clock.